This is the word of the Lord from Job chapter 16. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. I have buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red with weeping and darkness covers my eyes. Although my hands are free from violence, my prayer is pure. Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would for a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go to the way of no return. Hey, church family, Pastor Aaron here. Uh, Grateful to have yet another opportunity to dive into the scriptures. You know, we... As a church family at Sound City Bible Church, we we believe that the scriptures do not just contain information about God. These are not just, you know, it's not just a theology textbook or something to give us all the right information, but we really believe um, that by reading and thinking and meditating on these words, that that God himself, the living God himself, meets with us and, and transforms us and draws us into relationship with him. And uh, the book of Job is is a challenging book. It's a difficult book at times to understand, but even in that difficulty, in that wrestling, even in that, we believe that God draws us into relationship with him, that we can reason with him, that we can wrestle with the ideas presented to us. And somehow, even mysteriously in ways, uh, God meets with us in, in the pages of this book. So we're in the book of Job. This is our seventh teaching from the book of Job. And, you know, I've been saying this, you know, at the beginning, we went really slowly to kind of make sure we were setting the ground, uh, the groundwork. Now we're going in in much broader strokes and we're going to cover quite a bit of material from the book of Job, but it's, it's just easier to do it this way to, to maybe help you understand these broad themes or these, these kind of overarching themes that we find in the book of Job. And so we're going to tackle one of those, a really important one today, and we're going to meet yet one more uh, person that we've as of yet been introduced to in the book of Job. And so um, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. Lord, I pray that you would help me to do a good job of explaining these ideas. I pray that your Holy Spirit would would um, speak through me. I also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guard my lips and my tongue, that you would help me to only say that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, would you give everyone who is listening uh, soft and receptive and teachable hearts. Lord, would you help us have hearts that would be... Um, uh, discerning of our own hearts and our own minds and where we look for our advocacy, where we look for our sense of, of uh, defense and, and being okay before you. Lord, would you help us now, I pray. In Jesus' good name, amen. So when I was in sixth grade, I had a lot of energy. Surprise, uh, Aaron as a kid had a lot of energy. And, and one morning before school, uh, all the different classes would kind of wait in the gymnasium area and you'd have to wait, pretty typical, for your teacher to come pick you up and bring you back to the classroom. And so we're all waiting and I'm there with these sixth grade boys and I had energy and we were kind of roughhousing because it was eight in the morning and why not? And we're kind of roughhousing around. And, and, and what happened was a friend pushed me And so I stumbled and I ran into another friend who sadly smacked his head against the wall. I can remember pretty clearly, even to this day, I can remember that moment. And he, he, he hit his head against the wall and he kind of looks up and he he did one of those kind of cartoon sort of things like that. And he started laughing and we went right back to playing. And the teacher who was assigned to monitor the gymnasium, 
shouted really loudly from the middle of the gym and then came running over and singled me out and started yelling at me and started accusing me of taking the friend's head in my hands and smacking it against the wall repeatedly, which just didn't happen. And so I start to argue my case with this teacher, which, which this teacher was not having it. So the teacher sent me to the principal's office and I had to call my mom. And so my mom came down and, and I, I, maybe I got my details a little bit wrong. It was sixth grade. It's been, a, you know, it's been a few years, five or six years since I was in sixth grade. And I, and I was, I was talking, I can remember my mom talking with the, the principal and we left and maybe that conversation didn't go particularly well. So I think my parents both together, my mom and dad went back and had a meeting with the administration and with that particular teacher who had, who had yelled at me and they came home from that meeting and I said, how did it go? And they said, well, we're switching schools. This teacher wouldn't back down, wouldn't apologize. And, and I just remember in that moment, even as a kid, you know, whatever I was, 12 years old or so, feeling obviously a sense of sadness for having to switch schools and, and going to miss my friends. And I actually really liked my teacher. The person who was yelling at me was not my teacher. My teacher was great. I'm actually Facebook friends with my sixth grade teacher from that school uh, now. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I remember this distinct feeling of just thankfulness and, and safety that my parents took up my case they believed me when I said, no, I did not intentionally slam his head against the wall. It was kind of a domino chain reaction. We were all roughhousing. They believed me and they, they argued my case before the, the, the person who was accusing me. And I just remember that, that feeling of safety and security and, and thankfulness of knowing that I had someone in my corner. I had someone as my advocate. We can use words like advocate or in our cultural context, we might say something like my defense attorney. Sometimes we even could use the language of a mediator, someone who's like a go-between, who's going to help you know, these two parties who are at odds come together. And, and we find these words at the heart of something that Job wants. A little bit of review. Remember the, the, the earliest verses of the book, we are introduced to this person, Job, who is described as a really good man. He's the best man that has, has ever lived. And, and he is, he's faithful to God and he loves his family and he's wealthy and blessed beyond measure. And then you cut to the scene in heaven where God is, is uh, meeting with his heavenly counsel. And he's, he's just saying, man, isn't Job amazing? Isn't he such a good guy? And the challenger steps up and says, well, hey, I'd like to offer this alternative opinion because I think he only serves you because you bless him so much. And if you took away all of the stuff, he wouldn't be loyal to you. He only wants your stuff. It's almost like this challenger is acting as a prosecuting attorney. And so Job goes through two rounds of intense suffering. He loses his possessions, his children, his adult children die and and then the 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 final round of suffering is he he loses his physical health he is he is covered with painful sores from the it says from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet and here's the real kicker job doesn't exactly know why he doesn't exactly know why job we we the reader because of the divinely inspired narrator we have a window into this heavenly scene that job doesn't know about. He just knows that he and God are now at odds somehow. Well, the friends show up, you know, good old Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and they show up and they're like, well, obviously, 
you did something wrong, Job. The world is the kind of place that reflects God's justice. If you are suffering like this, you must have done something to deserve it. It's this idea of retribution theology that we looked at previously. And Job digs his heels and he goes, no, 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 I didn't do anything to deserve this. Job doesn't claim to be perfectly sinless, but he says, I haven't done anything that would warrant this kind of suffering. And so the back and the forth and the arguing and and Job begins to question, well, maybe God's not even just, maybe he's not a just God because I know I'm innocent and I know that the world runs according to this principle of retribution theology, and it doesn't, but Job wants a defense attorney. He wants an advocate. He wants a mediator who can go between himself and God to sort this out so he can figure out what is the deal, God. You know, I mentioned that there's these three cycles. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. There's these three cycles of speeches where all of the friends and Job go back and forth, all the friends and Job go back and forth, all the friends go back and forth. And each of these cycles you can hear Job crying out for someone to come to his defense. So cycle number one, for example, in Job chapter nine, verse 32 and beyond, he says this, for he, this is Job speaking, God, he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but that is not the case. I am on my own. I wish there was a mediator. We could go to court. We could work this out, but I guess that's not the case. I'm on my own. Cycle number two, Job 16, beginning in verse 18. Job cries out again. He says, earth, Do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. And then he says this. He goes, even now, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. Job, he can't shake this this hope that there might be some sort of a a supernatural being, maybe an angel, somebody who could argue his case. He's convinced there's got to be. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would with a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. I'm going to die soon at, at some point here. I really wish there was someone who could stand in between me and God So we could just talk the way that two friends would. Cycle number three. And remember, these cycles get more and more intense and Job gets more and more frustrated. So cycle number three, Job 23, I'll I'll start in verse one. He says, then Job answered, today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. If only I knew how to to find him so I could go to his throne. Uh, What's the phone number? What's the address? I need to get in touch with God directly. I I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how he would answer me and uh, understand what he would say to me. 
Would he prosecute me forcefully? No, he would certainly pay attention to me. And then an upright man could reason with him and I would escape my judge forever. I would be acquitted. (laughs) Job is basically saying here in this third cycle, I'll be my own defense attorney. He's starting to lose that little bit of hope that he had that maybe there is an advocate for me in heaven. Maybe there is someone who would stand up for me. He goes, you know what? I'll represent myself. I've got no one else to turn to. By the way, the friends, the three friends, do not agree with Job's hopeful assessment. Job 5.1 Chapter five, verse one, Eliphaz, who's, who's kind of the ringleader of the three friends, maybe even the spokesperson or the representative of the three friends. He's speaking to Job. Eliphaz says, Job, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? So Job at various points, has this hope that maybe someone could come help him work things out with God. Why am I suffering? What did I do? What is going on in my life? And the friends say, it's pretty simple, Job. You just need to repent for being such a wicked sinner. And Job goes, that can't be it. I need some help. And back and forth and back and forth through the end of chapter 31 and in the beginning of chapter 32, we are introduced to someone new. Someone named Elihu. Job 32, I'll start in in verse one. It said, so the three men quit quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. We talked about that before, Job's self-righteousness. But then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, from the family of Ram, became angry. Where'd this guy come from? He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. Verse three, though, he was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and had yet, and yet had condemned him. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were all older than he. So he's like a young guy, but he's angry. But when he saw that the three men could not answer Job, he became angry. You guys understand that he's angry? Like over and over and over again, he's angry. So Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite, replied, I'm young in years while you are old. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to tell you what I know. I I thought I'd just wait. I thought that age should speak and maturity should teach wisdom. Remember, we saw that the three friends are from the East and they're supposed to be thought of as these, you know, wise men from the East. But he realized, he goes, I realized that It's the spirit in a person, the breath from the Almighty, that gives anyone understanding. It is not only the old who are wise or the elderly who understand how to judge. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will declare what I know. And this kicks off six chapters of uninterrupted speech from Elihu. Now, he has, it's kind of an unusual intrusion into the story. How, how long has he been sitting there listening? Apparently the whole time, because he's going back and forth and saying, you know, Job is defending himself. The friends can't refute him, and yet they've also condemned him. He's sitting back. He's like, this thing is a mess. 
And he's trying to be respectful as a, as a young man, but he's pretty irritated right now. And he said, look, just because they're older doesn't mean they're actually wiser. They're, they're not doing a good job. Now, Elihu is interesting <clears throat> because, I mean, the book of Job has all sorts of controversies in it, but Elihu might be low-key one of the most divisive or controversial figures in the book. Uh, even in my own collection of commentaries that I've been reading to help me, uh, you know, teach the book of Job, scholars are pretty split. Some say we shouldn't listen to him and others say we should listen to him. Some view him as, uh, you know, basically just more of the same for the friends and others say, no, hold on, there's something a little bit different about him. So let me just lay a few reasons before you and I'll give you my conclusion, but this might be something that you need to read and pray about and study about and and wrestle through. Um, I'll I'll tell you my opinion, and that is different from, you know, God's honest truth here. So some people say you should distrust him, first of all, because he's young. So he's youthful. And in a culture that revered and honored elders, you would, you would be right to be a little skeptical of youth. Secondly, he's angry. Like he's really angry over and over and over again. And so some he's just this angry young man. You shouldn't listen to him. And Number three, some say you should distrust him or you shouldn't listen to him because there is a lot of his theology that sounds like the friends. He's got, he's got a decent amount of the retribution theology uh, baked into his speeches that he gets into. <clears throat> now, I don't think that any one of those three is necessarily super compelling why we should distrust him. Just because he's young, I mean, uh, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your, you because you're young, but set an example. And so maybe Elihu could be someone who's like that, who's, who's setting an example, even though he's young. He already says that wisdom doesn't come automatically with age. It comes from knowing the spirit of God. And maybe he's angry rightfully. Maybe he's angry because he's hearing Job accuse God of being unjust and to you know, self-righteous defense. And he's angry at these friends because they're full of wind and they're, they're, they're defending a worldview that is, is incomplete. Maybe he's righteously angry. There is such a thing. And even if there is retribution theology in his speech, you might remember that I said retribution theology in and of itself is not wrong. It is good to, to live a good and godly life and to seek the rewards that come from that, but it's not all that there is, that there's grace and there's mercy and there's other stuff going on besides just, you know, the sowing and reaping sort of principle. Here are seven reasons why I think we would be right to, in general, trust the words of Elihu. Number one, when he first shows up, it lists his family lineage, right? It says, Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite from the family of Ram. Nobody else in the book of Job is given a family lineage. And in the Hebrew scriptures, we know that that is a sign of honor and respect. So when we're introduced to him, we're to think, oh, this is somebody honorable from an honorable family line. Uh, the second reason I think you could trust him is that he explicitly says that he wants to be gentle with Job. 33, verse 7, chapter 33, verse 7, he says, uh, Fear of me should not terrify you, Job. No pressure from me should weigh you down. He says, you know, I'm, I'm just a man like you. And I need to speak some things about God to you, but, but don't let this weigh on you. I want to I help you. Number three. It is notable that he is never interrupted or challenged for six straight chapters. 
He has the largest uninterrupted section of text, even more than Yahweh himself. When God shows up at the end, he speaks for six straight chapters. And and Robert Alden, who's one uh, scholar, whose commentary I noted this week, he said this, Elihu's speeches are longer than 12 other Old Testament books and 17 of the 27 New Testament books. <laughs> Elihu's Elihu's longer than Colossians. Elihu's longer than, you know, first, second, third. Elihu's speech is long. And that should maybe say something. Number four, he corrects both Job and the friends. And that's going to be, as we'll see in a little while, that's in line with what God does as well. God corrects Job for some things. God corrects the friends for other things. So Elihu is, is, is acting and in speaking in a way that's in line with God. Number five, he gives credit for his wisdom to God. As I already said, it says it's the breath from the Almighty or the spirit from God that gives anyone understanding. So he's giving credit where credit's due. Number six, when God shows up, God corrects everyone except for Elihu. He's not corrected. In fact, he's not really addressed by God at all, either positively or negatively, which leads me to conclusion or, 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 or um, evidence number seven, that Elihu's speech flows directly into God's. In chapter 37 in particular, you start to see all this language of like wind and, and storms and, and you know, God, God's thunderous voice, it rumbles from his mouth and there's a thundering with his majestic voice and he doesn't restrain the lightning and he's, he's speaking all of this and then boom, it says in 38, God spoke to them from the whirlwind. And it's almost like as Elihu is speaking, this great storm is like gathering around them. I, in, my, in my mind's eye and my imagination, I almost picture like when Gandalf is talking in the Lord of the Rings and he's, he's speaking and like the, the storm clouds start coming and everything starts getting dark. It's, it's kind of like that in my imagination. Maybe my imagination's off. But it, it at least, the, these evidences at least raise an interesting question. Is Elihu the advocate that Job wants? 33 verse 31, Elihu says this, Pay attention, Job. Listen to me. Be quiet. I'll speak. Almost like a, almost like a lawyer would say, hey, hey, you, you don't say anything. I, I'll, I'll defend you. If you have something to say, answer me. Speak for, I would like to justify you. Interesting. Is Elihu the advocate that Job wants? Probably not. Because in the very next chapter, chapter 34, verse 5, Elihu says, well, Job has declared that I am righteous, yet God has deprived me of justice. Or, or later, later down in verse 10, listen to me, you men of understanding. It is impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly. So, sorry, Job, you're accusing God of being unfair and unjust, but that just is impossible and you're defending yourself. So, in one sense, Elihu is not the advocate that Job wants because what Job really wants is someone to march into the judge's chambers and say, Job's innocent. You need to let him go. But there is one really interesting thing to note here. Elihu, he, he may not be the mediator that Job is wanting, but he does disagree with the friends. Elihu does 
have a message of grace. He does believe, he does agree with Job that there might be a heavenly mediator. And if, if, if this mediator could be found, oh boy, that'd be good. Job chapter 33, beginning, I'll begin in verse 19. Listen to what Elihu says. This is, this is some beautiful stuff. This is, this is at the center right here of what Elihu is saying. 33, beginning in 19. Okay, so a person may be disciplined on his bed with pain and his constant distress in his bones so that he detests bread and his soul despises his favorite food. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his unseen bones stick out. He draws near to the pit or to the grave and his life to the executioners. Okay, Elihu says, look, somebody could be super distressed, going through really hard times. And, and yet, verse 23 if there is an angel on his side, one mediator out of a thousand to tell a person what is right for him and to be gracious to him and to say, spare him from going down to the pit. Who would this mediator be talking to? The mediator would be talking to God. God, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Then his flesh will be healthier than in his youth. And he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. He will pray to God and God will delight in him. That person will see his face with a shout of joy and God will restore his righteousness to him. He will look at men and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what was right. Yet I did not get what I deserve. That's mercy, friends. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and I will continue to see the light. God certainly does all these things two or three times to a person in order to turn him back from the pit so that he may shine with the light of life. I think that is perhaps one of the most hopeful and beautiful passages in the entire book of Job because he says, look, there, it's really hard to find this true mediator, like, like a one in a thousand chance. But if you find it, this, this true mediator could bring redemption from even death itself. Spare this person from going down to the pit. And this, this true mediator would bring a joyful relationship between you and God instead of this broken relationship between you and God, instead of this fractured relationship between you and God. Uh, this true mediator could make it so that God delights in you and you respond with a smile of joy on your face. And this true mediator, the best part about it is the true mediator shows up with the ransom themselves. Behold, I have found a ransom. That's the mediator speaking. I found it. I've got it. I've brought it. I'll make things okay. And friends, obviously for us as Christians, we see how all of those things, whether Elihu knew it or not, all of those things point us to the mediator that we have in Jesus Christ. See, Job wanted one type of mediator, but what we have, friends, is even better. We have a better advocate. We have a better defense attorney. We have a better mediator in Jesus Christ. See, Job wanted an angel, but Jesus is the son of God who the book of Hebrews says is far greater, far greater than any angel. Job wanted someone to prove his own righteousness. 
Jesus comes and lives a perfectly righteous life and then says, I'm going to wrap you up in my righteousness so you can trust in my perfect righteousness, not in your own righteousness. And Job depended on his own efforts to get himself out of the mess that he was in. But friends, Jesus comes and says, I will pay the ransom for you. The great debt that is owed to God because of our sinfulness, Jesus paid it all on the cross. His blood was shed. His body was broken. He breathed out his spirit all in order to satisfy the great debt that we owed. And yet, friends, Jesus paid that ransom in joy and in delight so that we might be rescued. And Job, Job wanted someone to keep him from dying. But friends, Jesus went all the way into the the belly of death itself and came back out on the other side, resurrected and alive forevermore so that death has no claim on us. And what Jesus has done, it does what Elihu said. It has restored a relationship of joy where now when God looks at you, he is delighted in you because you are in Christ. You've, you've not trusted in yourself. You've trusted in what Jesus has done. So God is delighted in you. He smiles upon you and you can respond with a shout of joy and praise. Jesus is the ultimate mediator, the advocate who is better than we could ever imagine. Now, <laughs> this, this theme of advocate and mediator, I, I want to spend just a few minutes really <sighs> trying to bring some application into our lives. Because up to now, it's all very theological sounding. See, for Job, it wasn't. Job is in the throes of distress. He's going through some really difficult times and he's struggling to understand how he and God can, can be uh, reconciled. And so I, I want to ask you to consider with me for a few moments, what kind of advocate do you want? Maybe another way I could say it is this, who will represent me and show that I'm okay? Now you already know that I am, am, am pleading with you to seek that in Jesus. But it is very easy to fall into uh, a few places, many places really, where we seek that, uh, that, that representation outside of Christ Jesus. What will represent me? Who will represent me? How am I going to know that my life is okay when things are not going well? Where am I going to look to make sure that I know that my life has value and meaning. Let me just give you a few examples. There, there are more than these, but here are a few that you could look at your own self and your own heart to see if this is true for you. Number one, I see a lot of people looking to government to be advocate. If we just had the right people in Congress, if my person got elected to president, if only the, the elected officials would do X, Y, or Z, if only the governor would do this, if we just had the right Supreme Court justices, and they don't necessarily say it, but dot, 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 then I would be shown to be okay. I would be in the right. Now, friends, government has a good and God-ordained place in human society. Uh, there are passages about the purpose of government to maintain uh, 
peace so that we might live peaceable and quiet lives to, to hold those who do wrong accountable. Government has its place, and it is absolutely not sinful whatsoever to have opinions or perspectives on how government should, should be run. And I, I mention this because we're in a, <clears throat> not only are we in a, you know, the middle of this pandemic and all sorts of government decisions that affect our lives left and right day and night, but we're also, lest you forget, in an election year, a presidential election year, as if the suffering in 2020 wasn't already bad enough. Listen to me, friends. It's not wrong to say, hey, I think the government should do this, or hey, this seems like it would be the best way to lead to, to peace and to human flourishing. But there is such a thing as political idolatry, where we look to the government for the answers to everything. If we could just get this person in, if this decision could just be made, if this bill could be passed, and, and you know that you might wrestle with political idolatry when your emotions are just <clears throat> you know, all over the place, high or low, depending on what happens. Or if, if you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm not exaggerating where I've had these conversations with people. I walk up like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good. You know, president did such and such. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I didn't ask you what was going on in Washington, D.C. I'm asking you what's going on in your life. I've had those literal, I'm not exaggerating. At its core, political idolatry is a failure to trust that Jesus is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is our politician or attorney that we need. Number two, let let me, let me just, you know, when you're on thin ice, you might as well dance, right? Number two, uh, the expert as advocate what is the expert? Who is the expert? Or what is the ideology? Or, or what is the podcast? Or what is the book? Or what is the blog blogger that, that I'm going to, you know, kind of hitch my wagon to? And I'm going to listen to all the things that they say. And maybe it's not the person themselves. Maybe it's the, the ideology or the, or the, you know, the, the, the principles that they teach. And if I could just understand all of them, they will represent me and my rightness. I'll walk in their shoes. I'll follow their ways. And, and then I'll be proven to be in the right. You know, I, like, I'll just say some names, like, depending on, on who you are. You know, there's um, Brene Brown does a lot of uh, kind of psychology work on shame. Or Joe Rogan, you know, his 24-hour-long podcast episodes that will tell you just what to think, and you'll have everything figured out, and you'll be so much smarter than everybody because you listen to Joe Rogan. Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, or Bill Nye or other public scientists. Well, they're, they're scientists. They wear lab coats. They must know everything. Jordan Peterson, because he just sticks it to the man. And he, you know, he's straight shooter and tells it like his. Look, I, I wish I could just go on for days because I could f- probably pick on somebody that you like. Look, again, it is not wrong to listen to experts or to try to weigh what is said or to sift through, hey, you know, people are saying this or the CDC says that or this, this mommy blog says this other thing. It's not wrong to, to gather information and to weigh it and to test it, but there is something about it where it just becomes our substitute advocate. This is what makes me right. This is what proves me to be in the right. What about a relationship as advocate? Government is advocate, expert is advocate. Let's go a little closer to home. A friend. My, uh, one of my daughters was watching Anne of Green Gables recently, the old PBS uh, uh, production of it. And I just remember that line uh, of, you know, uh, Anne wanting her, her bosom friend, somebody who will finally understand me. 
If I can find this friend, you know, it's the whole you complete me sort of thing, right? Whether it's friendship or more commonly in our society, romantic relationship. If I could just find the one, the one, it's the one. It's there's literally just one person in this world of 7 billion people, there's one who's going to complete you. The, the other piece of the puzzle that fits so perfectly with you. And usually, miraculously, they live within about 10, 15 miles of you. It's crazy how that always works out. Friends, <laughs> I mean, obviously, friendship is not wrong. It's super important. I did a teaching last summer in our, in our Things That Are Hard To Do series, or maybe it was the Proverbs series. I did a teaching on friendship and how important that is. And obviously romance is not wrong. The, 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 the scriptures could be categorized as a great romance, the, the marriage of, of Jesus and his bride, the church. But, but again, it turns into, this is what makes me right. This friendship, this relationship, this is what makes me okay. Or lastly, how about just self as advocate? I'll be my own advocate. You just end up like Job. I'll just represent myself. I'll just do more good deeds. I'll help more people. I'll get more degrees. I'll succeed in business. I will be in charge of myself. I'll be my own advocate. I I do want to say something. This is a very important caveat. It is at this point that sometimes this idea of advocacy can be misused or, or, or even abused particularly in the category of like abusive relationships or, or something where harm is happening between two parties, there could be a misunderstanding. And tragically, this has happened in the church, uh, in the West, at least, and, and other parts of the world as well, where this idea of like, well, let Jesus be your advocate means you can't speak up for yourself when you're being harmed or in pain. It's what I'm talking about, you know, abuse is categorically different from what I'm talking about today. So please do not conflate the two. In fact, you know, there's... Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, advocates for himself when he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I'd like to speak to the emperor. I'd like to defend my rights as a, as a citizen. Or, or in the Torah, if, if a woman is being assaulted, she has the, not only the, the right, but even the commandment to cry out and to advocate for herself and to seek for help from someone. So, so please do not mishear what I'm saying as far as advocating for yourself. If, if there's something unhealthy, even just in your relationship that's just not going well. It's like, hey, can I just tell you, here's where I'm coming from. So that's the caveat. I am talking about what is at the fundamental level going to make your life feel like you're okay. And for some of you, it's just you. I will lead on myself. It's, it's, you know, Lone Ranger, John Wayne, kind of swagger, sort of like, I'll just be exactly who I want to be. And I will make myself be okay. So friends, I I, I belabor this point a little bit because I just want you, I want to challenge you to be honest with yourself. Where do you go for your sense of rightness in the world? To whom do you turn, whether it's politician or expert or friend or romantic partner or self, to whom do you turn to help you feel like I'm okay? And I want to plead with you it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. He's the advocate. Like Job, we, we want one type of advocate, but he's the one that's even better for us so that we can know that our lives have meaning and value. And then one last, last observation. Really interesting observation. <clears throat> At the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 7 
After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, kind of the ringleader, the representative, I'm angry with you and your two friends for you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, here's what you're going to do, Eliphaz. Take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then when you offer that sacrifice, you show that you're contrite, you show that you're sorry. My servant Job will pray for you and I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So then Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Once Job really grasped the grace that is his in God, once Job had a true experience with God, his advocate, and we're going to explain that more in a couple of weeks, but you see this, once, once Job gets it, Once Job stops crying out for some uh, advocate that he wants in his mind, he is able to actually turn and be an advocate for his friends. Scholars have often pointed out that that even this points to the the mediatorial role that Christ plays for us. He's this go-between between the friends and God. And so friends, well, while we only have one mediator, Jesus Christ, we are called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to others. The more that we stop looking for a different advocate, the more that we throw ourselves upon the advocate, upon the mediator Jesus, the more that we're able to go help those who are are in need, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are suffering, those who are being abused. So if you want to actually be able to do some good in this world, a world where there is a lot of abuse and there is a lot of injustice, if you want to be able to do that, quit going to the government, to the experts, or to yourself, and run to Jesus that he might transform you more in his image and likeness to, to show his advocacy to the world. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us. God, I pray that you would give us the honesty and the courage. For me and, and anyone who's listening, would you give us the honesty and the courage to see where we turn to advocates that we think we want and we don't turn to you. And Jesus, would you break us of that? Help us to understand that you and you alone is what will make us, make us right, give our lives the, the, the justification that we desire. And Lord, would you do it? Because our world is hurting and many people need to know that there's someone in their corner. And Lord, would you help us to come with the love and the advocacy of Christ Jesus, the righteous. We'll pray this all in his good name. Amen.